Welcome! I'm Roxanne Spring, your personal midwife after hours, celebrating and promoting wisdom and power in pregnancy, birth, and beyond. to this very special episode. There is a warning that we are going to talk about partner and intimate violence. So just be warned ahead of time. I'm so delighted to have Cassandra Aejo. She's the CPM and CA. She's a military wife and, and is mom to four incredible human beings. She graduated from mid Midwives College of Utah and currently a graduate student at Bastyr's Masters of Arts in Maternal Child Health Systems program. She's the owner of Midnight Midwifery. Cassandra is passionate about advocating for victims of and survivors of domestic violence, particularly during pregnancy, and she's created a dialogue about systematic change and providing educational lectures to healthcare providers about intimate partner violence, its effects on pregnant people, families, and ultimately our communities. She was awarded with the Harris Braun Outstanding Poster Award for Research at Manicam 2017, and this was research on sharing sexual responsibility. So delighted to have you with us today, Cassandra. Welcome. I'm so delighted to welcome you here today. Thank you for being here, Cassandra. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Me too. Me too. One of the things I'm always curious about is tell me about how you, what drew you, how did you hear about, and what has midwifery been in your life? Yeah, I mean, that's such a huge question. I think so many us of us, Midwives have similar answers, which I find really comforting. Um, midwifery was not something that I knew about growing up. It wasn't prevalent um, in the area that I lived in. Um, I think I maybe knew one person as a like a teenager that had a home birth, and like they were crazy, right? <laughs> Everybody just it was like it made like the local news. Um, mm. So I had two children in the hospital and, um, you know, my first experience was like phenomenal. Like you will never catch me disparaging all OBs or all hospital based providers because I had the most incredible experience. Um, you know, as my first baby I had, I'd had a loss before that at 18 weeks. Um, and this new provider, I transferred to her at like 36 weeks um, because my first provider was pretty terrible and kind of, you know, I was um, lower socioeconomic status and we, we didn't have a lot and I have tattoos and piercings and I think there was a lot of judgment um, in my incredibly conservative small town, especially. And so I transferred uh, to this new OB and like, she was just so wonderful. I mean, she she just talked to me like I was a human being. Mm -hmm. And it was probably, I mean, I was 25. And that was probably like the first time in my whole life 
that somebody in an authoritative place spoke to me like I was something and that I could make decisions um, about my own body and my own care. So, you know, this was, she, I like to think, like when I think of her, she's like this unicorn in the obstetric system because she never left my side when I went into labor and checked in. She was in my room the whole time. Um, and uh -huh. my sister was there who had had children previously and she was like picked their birthdays and got an epidural before anything happened you know like she would just had a very planned birth and which is awesome for her that's what she needed and I was like I'm gonna do this naturally and she thought I was nuts <laughs> um and I remember my sister being like I think she needs an epidural now like that looks bad I think and she just kept saying it and I would be in the middle of a contraction, like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, like, that sounds good. I would do that. And the doctor, um, the nurse, like, went out and found the guy and, like, started bringing him in. And the, the OB barred the door and was like, this is not what she wants. Like, we've had extensive conversations. And she's not asking for it when she's not having a contraction. Like, if she asks me... We had set up a code word, like she knew what I really wanted. And, um, you know, I was like standing in the middle of the room, which is so kind of unheard of. Um, and she got down on the floor and like welcomed my baby that way. And it was like, oh, this is birth. So my first experience with birth was so, so powerful and so wonderful. Um, and then I had another child, uh, about a year and a half later and um, again in the hospital and um, that provider was not the same. That provider did not allow me to do what was comfortable. I wanted to stand and they said, no, absolutely not. Like they, she put her stool on the edge of the bed and said, if I can't catch your baby from right here, then you can't birth that way. And I thought, okay, yeah, like I made that face and I was like, okay, watch this. And I stood on the edge of the bed. There was no handrail. There was nothing. And she was yelling at me. And I was like, my body needs to be upright. Like I couldn't lay down. And um, so she found me to be incredibly combative. Um, those were her words in my chart. Um and after my daughter was born, um, they said, you know, we want to give you Pitocin, but nobody said anything about why there was no discussion. And I just, all I knew was like, I just had, I just had two babies totally naturally. And all I know about Pitocin is that it starts labor. Like, no, I don't need anything. And she got mad at me and left. So her and the nurse left the room and, um, about 40 minutes later, I I'm hearing this noise, this ticking, like a dripping faucet. And it was so repetitive. And I went to say something to my then partner and I couldn't talk. And I watched as my baby started rolling down and I couldn't get her. Um, I was bleeding to death and he started screaming you know, somebody came in and I was a, like, I was awake and they intubated me and they rushed me into surgery. And I didn't get to hold my baby after that for like three days because I was just 
you know, I needed several transfusions and there was just a lot. Um, and so those were my experiences with birth, right? Like I just kind of, it's part of the journey, but not all of the journey. So <laughs> in that time, part of, I think why, uh, providers kind of treated me poorly. Um, I was in an incredibly abusive relationship and, um, you know, there were some risk factors that appear clinically that, uh, maybe providers took personally, like I wasn't taking care of myself mm -hmm. and that genuinely wasn't the case. I was just kind of surviving and doing the best that I could do. And, um, like I remember at one point, um, with, with my first, the reason I transferred in the first place was because I went in and I had an STI screen standard and it came back that I had something and the, the OB said to my husband at the time, um, you know, are you going to get a paternity test? Cause you, you don't even know where she's been and what she's doing. Appalling. And I was like, I have been with this man since I was 18 years old. You know, like I sat there shocked hearing what was happening and starting to put the pieces together in my own mind of like what actually was going on. But instantly there was just so much blame and disgust at me as a, as a pregnant person. Um, so that was why I transferred. And then again, you know, when I was having my second part of the hostility was that it was in my chart that I had had previous STIs that were treated and, you know, during a pregnancy. And I overheard the nurse after Ayla was born say, are we going to give her antibiotics? Lord knows what this mother has given this baby. And I just, like, I just kind of shut down because how do you read, how do you even respond to that? How do you defend yourself as a human being when people that don't know you just make these snap judgments? Um, so it really, like, it really strengthened my abuser, you know, those people that had had all the power in the world to lift me up just continued to tear me down. And it took a, a little while, um, but, you know, I left, I left my ex-husband um, when my oldest was about a year and a half, my youngest was about nine months. And I started going to uh, a domestic violence group therapies and meeting other people that were like me. And there happened to be a pregnant person there who, you know, was had left their partner and didn't want them in the hospital room. And I thought, well, hey, like I've had kids. I can come with you. You know, I know kind of what to expect. And I didn't know what birth work was. Like, I didn't know anything. I was just coming from a place of I'm a human being that has done this and you have made so much progress. Like I'm getting chills just thinking about the progress that this person had made in her life to be free. And I knew what being in the wrong hands could do to her. And I just wanted to be there. I just wanted her to know somebody is here that, that knows you and supports you. And so <clears throat> I did that. And, um, you know, I was in a new relationship at the time and I came home and I was like, oh my gosh, like that was amazing. And I actually got kicked out of the room 
because I advocated for that person. Um, you know, there was, it was nothing like hugely major. Um, but you know, there was something that she didn't want and they just kept doing it. And I said, Hey, you can't do that. Like I am, I'm going to do something about this if you don't stop. So I got kicked out of the room. Um, and then, um, but I was talking to my, my partner about it. And I was, he said, and he said, if you could do anything in the world, like anything, what would you do? And I said, something with this, something in birth where I can just be there because, especially when it comes to domestic violence, there's just so much that is missed. Mm -hmm. And I had started to learn those things. And I don't think even at the time it was like a conscious decision. It was just like I was being pulled there. And um, he came home like a week later and handed me seven file folders. (laughs) And there was like one about doulas one about midwives, one about CNMs, one about OBs. Like, he's like, anything you want, what do you want to do? And I was like, holy cow. So I started researching and doula seemed at the time the most attainable. Um, so I went through doula training and kind of like started to build my business there. Um, but I kept getting kicked out of the room. And I was getting really mad at that. So I said, I need to do something that I will not be kicked out of the room. And um, yeah, and that's when I found midwifery. And, you know, I started at MCU in 2015. And just from the very beginning, it was super clear to me that, that people don't have a lot of experience with intimate partner violence during pregnancy. And so that has been my one and only focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's genuinely kind of all I care about at this point. That's what I want to, to focus on. So, I'm, yeah. I'm so that glad that cool. we have you here today to bring to us a wealth of information on that. But you've had a midwife birth. Tell us about that. <laughs> I did. So I have, I have since those births, I had another son in the hospital. Um, and, you know, I remarried and, and we had, we had another son and it was, it was the same type of thing. You know, I had a provider that like I was in midwifery school, but again, midwifery wasn't huge out of hospital birth wasn't huge where we lived. So I went into it. She was super young and seemed to be really on board with everything that I wanted and I was super good at advocating for myself throughout pregnancy. Um, but during birth, it's a whole other ball of wax, right? It's just how, like, I don't, mothers that do it, that can advocate for themselves so clearly, like I'm in awe of them because I just feel like everything I know flies out the window. Um, so the birth wasn't bad. It just wasn't what it could have been. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then, um, in early in 2020, in September, 2020, we had our fourth, uh, our fourth baby, um, a little boy. And I was so like, so I like, I love my home birth more than anything in the world. Um, my midwife was my preceptor and my best friend in the whole world. And so like the fact that her hands were the first hands to touch my baby and the fact that I for you know two years studied those hands I knew every move she was going to make I knew how gentle she was going to be with him and um you know like 
it's so funny because on one hand it was my hardest mm-hmm. labor and birth. It was very fast, very fast. In fact, I called her, she was about an hour away and I called her and I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't want you to drive out here. Cause how many times have we done that? Right? Like we drive out somewhere and nothing's happening. So I was like, I'm not going to be that person to you. Um, but I told her like, I'm just going to send the kids away and see if this kicks in. Like it's starting, but who knows? And like before I knew it, I was every two minutes and I was like, she's not going to make it. Oh my goodness. She's not going to make it. And I called her just about sobbing because I knew she wasn't going to make it. And she's like walking in my house because, she, you know, she's, I know you, like I knew the second you said you were sending the kids away, it's time to go. And, um, it was just incredible. Like it was so incredible to, to be home and my husband who, doesn't quite, even though, you know, even though this is what I do, he doesn't quite understand home birth at that point. You know, he's, he's a hospital kind of guy, like anything happens and he's like, let's go to the ER. It'll, it'll be great. You know? Um, so him being there was just so, so incredible. I mean, he was not, he was shuffled around and pushed away with, with our older son and he wasn't involved. And, you know, I mean, I ended up, it was just, it, it was fun. It just wasn't great. And then, you know, to, to be with him, you know, like, I mean, I think I honestly, like I probably had him in a headlock when I, he was right there, you know? Um, I don't know. And just to see like the way he feels about homework now mm-hmm. is so incredible. It's so great because he just understands me on a very different level now. Um, and because I was still midwifing myself mm. throughout my labor and I'm like <laughs> rattling off all the, you know, things. And he's like, oh, oh, like this is what you do. You know, it was fun. I don't know. I loved it. That's amazing. And that is not a typical midwife story that you haven't even had a midwife birth when you're already in the throes and at the yeah. at, almost toward the end of your training, right? Yeah. Or- I mean, I was graduated. I was done. I had been, yeah, I had, I had graduated in, um, in February officially, you know, like all the paperwork had come through. I think I was done with, with school in November and everything, my license and everything had come through in February. And then he was born in September. Um, yeah, so it was, it was cool, but I think also my, uh, there were a lot of, a lot of clients that kind of I think initially struggled because I had had three children and no home births and they were like well then why are you here Mm. but for me it was because I could just see the ripple effect of pain that can sometimes happen in the hospital and I just knew I knew I needed to do something so so different Mm. than that Mm. you know so that's an incredible story and then since you graduated, have, yeah. tell us what has been your midwifery journey to date. Oh, well, um, I had decided pretty early on, I think even in my education before I graduated, that I wasn't planning on opening a traditional home birth practice. Um, we're a military family first and foremost, so we move every few years. And I think it's really unfair to start building any kind of reputation in the community just to vanish. Like that's 
that's really hard for people. And we don't have control over when and where we go. So I kind of knew early that 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 wasn't going to be a, an option for me. Um, so actually, since what I've been doing is um, kind of doubling down um, a lot of <clears throat> a lot of my information on intimate partner violence um, is is self taught through you know research and all of my projects. Everything, every assignment at the Midwives College of Utah in some way you know was shaped by intimate partner violence. But that's a lot of just self learned information. So I actually um, took uh, a course to be a credentialed victim advocate. Um, that was one of the first things that I did. So now I am, um, I'm able to work in law enforcement or in hospitals or any other organization that may need a trained victim advocate. Um, and so I, I plan to offer that for, for people eventually. Um, and I actually also just started, I was accepted into the master's program at Bastyr, the uh, maternal child health systems program. So I'm really, really excited about that. And that's going to be kind of my focus for the next year um, to complete that because I think there's just still so much work to be done systemically. And though I knew I didn't want to do birth work in, within hospital walls, um, I offer a lot of trainings to OB practices or various hospitals um, and midwifery practices on how to do better for victims of intimate partner violence. And, you know, <clears throat> I think often people maybe assume that it's not super likely, you know, that it's like a specialized, oh, we may need that, we may not. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is, is that statistically, you know, one in three, one in four women um, or birthing people are victims of intimate partner violence. Mm. So it's, it's a widespread issue. Um, in, in the United States, there's, there's more than 3 million victims of intimate partner violence and 324,000 of them are pregnant. Mm -hmm. And, and those are just the reported numbers, you know, mm -hmm. so often, more often than not, um, this is something that goes unreported. Mm -hmm. So, people need to have a good awareness on what to do because providers can cause a lot of harm mm -hmm. willingly or unwillingly, even the most, you know, the best intentioned providers can cause a lot of harm. So I, I work really hard to help educate on that. So. Well, definitely appreciate your efforts. And actually when we met and we're having a great conversation together, there was a situation from my midwifery practice and of course now i'm retired but there was still um someone that from my practice that was now separated and having to defend herself mm -hmm. um, and it was in our conversation that i got lights going off in terms of learning information that and relating to this very newly and part of it you just came right out and said that she was doing her job by making it look that like things were fine at home absolutely and you and i think today it would be amazing to talk to us from that perspective 
of seeing it from the woman that may be out there that is experiencing this firsthand. Yeah, I think too, that's one of the things that, you know, for a very long time, uh, I didn't discuss what happened to me. You know, I, I did, as you, as you said, I did my job and um, no one really in my life knew. I think there were people that kind of maybe had an idea that things weren't great, you know, but I don't think anybody, well, I know for a fact, nobody knew just how in danger I was on a regular basis. Um, you know, there were, um, there were times that I just didn't, I didn't know if I was going to wake up to see the next day. I just truly had no idea. And, you know, the thing that people don't realize is that the more people that know and start to inquire or badger or whatever, the more complicated that gets for me for survival, right? Mm -hmm. Or for anybody else going through that. Like the, the, the reason that victims don't typically share is because that is imperative to their survival that nobody knows. Um, and I think one of the, I'm much more comfortable now talking about the things that have happened to me and kind of one of the things that I offer to people, I've done this at, at various schools, midwifery schools, I've done this for residents and hospitals, is a, just a very truthful, honest, open questions. You know, if you have questions about why a victim, you know, would respond this way or act this way, or why not just say something? Or, you know, there's been just like you, it's almost like sometimes I start talking and people have these light bulbs going off and they're like, oh, like that, that's reminding me of a previous patient or client or, you know, friend even or sister or something. Um, so ask me, ask me the questions that you maybe can't ask somebody else. Because while every person's situation is certainly different, um, the one thing we all have in common is survival. And it's, it's an instinct that, you know, you'll do whatever it takes. And, you know, people don't under, often understand what that looks like, you know? So, yeah. Well, the, there's, there's a bit of the rub because asking the right questions and often the case is the partner's there. Yes. It's yes. often the case when you have, not always, I'm not suggesting it's always that way, right. but very often there's not a lot of time where someone who is receiving or involved with intimate violence is by themselves. It's unusual. Right. Yeah. It's unusual. Yeah, no, that's, it's so true. And so the, one of the things um, I do, I do a lot of speaking engagements. And one of the things that I've actually created a course, it's about a four hour long course for now. It's, I mean, I could talk for a month probably, um, <laughs> but for now it's, it's small. And, uh, and we talk about those things. We talk about the importance of screening, how to do it properly which screens to use because, you know, one thing I found in my, when I was in school is that if you Google um, screens for intimate partner violence, you're going to have 150 to 200 screen options. And how do you know what works? Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I always, always recommend um, the danger assessment five for anybody listening. 
Mm -hmm. Um, It was created by Jacqueline Campbell and she is absolutely brilliant. Um, So I hope it's okay that I'm, I'm saying that, but this is (laughs) found to be the most accurate screen. Um, It's about 35 questions where people go wrong with the screen is typically they'll only ask the first three Mm. um, and then they'll leave it at that. Or if they think like, you know, they got a positive from those first three, then maybe they'll keep going. Mm. Um, But one of the things that um, I found she recommends doing is uh, called an escalation timeline with that. Um, And these are all things that I talk about kind of in my workshop. I talk about mandatory reporting because there are some huge, huge misinformations and opinions about mandatory reporting that are just incredibly dangerous. Mm. Um, and if it's, if, if things aren't done properly, um, you know, somebody could die. And I think that's the the thing that providers really need to really hear and, and all well-meaning people that want to help. Um, the risk for homicide goes up like exponentially for the first two years after police involvement. So, you know, if a neighbor, you hear neighbors fighting and you call the police, yes, I'm not saying don't call the police, please hear, you know, right? But just understand that that means that for, you know, two years, that person is in more serious risk Mm. of homicide. So, um, you know, as providers that like, that love their mandatory reporting laws and rules, um, you know, mandatory reporting does actually not extend to intimate partner violence unless there's a weapon involved. Um, and, and that's not even across the board. Like most states, most states, there's like three states. So I can't say none of the states. Um, California is one that is like absolutely mandatory report if you're a, a provider. That's the law. Um, but most states, that's not the case. So we talk about that. We run through scenarios. We run through case studies. Um, there are a ton of like clinical signs and symptoms of intimate partner violence that mirror very normal things mm-hmm. in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So we talk about that too and how to differentiate, you know, does this person just have hypertension or could there be more, mm-hmm. you know, um, is this person not gaining weight because they're not eating enough or could there be more? Mm-hmm. So there's various things that we kind of talk about. And, you know, one of the things that just floors me is that as midwives were trained for all of these emergencies, right? Like we, I, I was drilled into these emergencies that I may never, ever see in my career. Um, but the, the outcomes associated with intimate partner violence, um, hemorrhaging and stillbirth, and these things are very tangible and fairly common. And we're not being trained for that. We're not being talked about or talked to about these things. So, you know, these are all kind of things that I talk about in my course and try to just help everybody have a better understanding of what to do, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, is it common for people to be in denial? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So if someone, how, how, what, what's the best wake up, you know, that you know of? Like what, 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 what happened for you or what, you know, what, what is the good way to? 
I am going to share, I'll, I will share my wake up with you. Mm -hmm. Um, it's pretty graphic. So like trigger warning for people, if you know, you don't want to listen. Now's a good time to pause, but I encourage you to listen. Um, I had two children and, um, like I mentioned earlier, my, my children were very young, a year and a half and nine months. And, um, one morning he was going to work and I found, um, he had an addiction problem. Uh, and I found something, you know, that I was like, what, what is happening? I thought we were doing so good. You know, like I thought he was doing great. Um, and he got really, I flushed it and he got really angry and, um, you know, turned violent pretty quickly. And, um, I don't remember a whole lot, but I remember waking up, I was on the floor and I could hear my kids in different rooms. Um, my youngest was still in her crib. The older was in her high chair and I can hear them. And I don't know how much time has passed. I don't know what's happening. I don't, you know, I just couldn't really get it together. And I realized at that moment, it was just time, you know, it was time because if I wasn't there to take care of them, who would be? And, um, you know, there had been, that wasn't even like, that wasn't even the most horrific thing that had, you know, kind of transpired. We were together for 10 years. Mm. Um, but, but that was just kind of the moment that I knew something needed to change. And I think it was because I was like, just, I wanted to get to my children and I just was kind of stunned and I couldn't, I just couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out how to make my body work. I couldn't figure out how to navigate everything, you know? Um, so that was my kind of moment. And, um, you know, on average, it takes, it takes seven times for a person to leave an abusive partner. Um, at that point I had left nearly that, Mm -hmm. um, I had ended things multiple times over the years and uh, it didn't stick. Um, and you know, that time, thank God it did. I mean, I just can't imagine what would have happened if it didn't. Um, so the part two to that is that was my wake up call. And I was really lucky that I had, you know, someplace to go. I, you know, I could go to my mother's house and it was kind of that admission. Once I told my family what was happening, I really had to stick to it at that point because mm -hmm. not one person was going to support me if I went back. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so for me, that was kind of the turning point and kind of helped me stabilize. Um, but, you know, what, when it comes to, when it comes to other people, um, I get asked this question a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we, how do we get people to see that they're in an abusive relationship? How do we get them to wake up? How do we get them to leave? Mm -hmm. And nobody loves this answer, but the truth is, is that we don't, we just don't. Um, they know, they know, they know something's not right. Um, they're already planning. They're already in survival mode. They're already thinking about all of the steps and they may make that leap and they may not, but if they do it prematurely, it's, it's super dangerous. If they're not ready to leave, um, it's incredibly dangerous for them to try. And, um, another thing, again, it's a super unpopular opinion is that pregnancy is not the time to even try. 
It's really not. Um, obviously, if, if somebody is in like grave danger, of course, of course, we need to get them out. Right. And that's why we learn the skills of doing the risk assessments and, and you know, seeing the escalation timelines and, and seeing what's happening because abuse is a spectrum um, and things can trigger an escalation at any point. Pregnancy often triggers an ex- escalation. It's stressful. It's, you know, financially stressful. It's emotionally stressful. And then the postpartum period can often trigger an escalation. There's a crying baby and people can't do what they're used to doing and nobody's sleeping. And, you know, I mean, pregnancy, the, the childbearing year as a whole is a giant button for an escalation. Um, but unless somebody is ready and comes to you as their, you know, as their provider and says, listen, this is what's happening and I'm ready to leave and I just need help doing so, then, you know, there's not a lot we can do. You know, I know people want to, I want to, I, I see it, you know, all the time. And I think, oh my goodness, I know better than anybody how that's going to end. And I want to save you from it. Um, but if I'm not careful, I can do way more harm than good. And, you know, ultimately autonomy is what we stand for. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. And so these are autonomous people that get to decide when, um, if, and when they're ready to make a change in their lives. Mm. So. Tell me a little bit about the making that not just making that transformation from being out of that relationship but you have that whole other complete transformation from being in a victim mindset can you speak to that for a moment or two yeah i mean i think um it was very hard i have now you know i've been out of that relationship now uh for seven years or so and um like I said, I mean, initially I just, you know, I don't want to talk about it at all. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell, I didn't tell anybody really what happened except for again, like those few details that would hold me accountable. Right. Like it was just kind of this, I'm going to let you know this because I know like my sister, I know you're going to look at me funny if I say, Hey, I went back to him. Right. Like I, I'm going to tell those types of things. Um, but I didn't talk about it. I, mm-hmm. while in group therapy, Um, that was kind of the only safe space that I had to talk about it. Um, and that didn't last very long. I was a single mom. I worked and, um, you know, couldn't, couldn't do that as often as I really probably should have. Um, I think for me, um, you know, again, another trigger warning, uh, my, my ex-partner died by suicide and, um, and that was the first, I think that was the first time I took a breath since I was mm. a teenager. Mm. You know, I don't have the same battles that everybody has. Um, and I'm not trying to look at it as this great thing. That's not what I mean. But I just mean that I, um, once I started working through these things and kind of as a student was researching things and I was like, oh, like, I'm not weird. These are clinical things. These are real things that happen to just about everybody in this experience. Mm-hmm. So I, there's nothing wrong with me, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Um, it's not my fault that providers missed it. It's not my fault that 
society kind of almost demands poor treatment of other people in so many ways, you know? So I started finding a lot of strength in that research mode and I could put on a clinical hat and not a personal one. Mm -hmm. Um, but I will say like the first, the first few times that I started doing my lecture, uh, I could barely get through it. Mm -hmm. I could barely talk about it. Um, I take a lot of time now to share my story because mm -hmm. I feel like it helps people understand that this isn't just, you know, I'm not somebody that just sat in a library for six years, <laughs> right. you know? Right. Um, so uh, now I feel like I, in my work and in my, you know, I've now met so many people that experience this and it's almost like uh, my, a friend of mine, she jokes, she kind of, she calls me a drug dog because when I meet people, sometimes I can just really tell. And I don't push it, it's not my business unless they're willing to talk to me about it, you know? Um, most often I'm sought out because I'm a safe person to talk to. Um, but hearing their stories and through the interviews that I've done and taking, you know, with clients that I've worked with and different people, um, there's still a lot of fear for them. You know, they may have moved on, they may be in a different, place in their lives but that person is still out there that person is still very much there and i don't necessarily have that same drawback so i think it's really important for me to use my voice because mm -hmm. people don't want to talk about this you know it's scary to talk about this it's scary to be vulnerable but it's also 10 times more frightening to worry that you're going to say something and it's going to travel down and somebody's going to hear it and come back with a vengeance because how dare you say that about me, you know? So <clears throat> I have, I have an opportunity to use my voice there. Yeah. Well, and it is such a needed voice. Yeah. There is been a little bit more acceptance with um, the whole movement. What is it? The Me Too movement and the things Me like that. Too to yeah. really bring the light and shine it on this area. And with that attitude of having more voice for all of women, you know, about themselves, about their care, about their their power. And mm -hmm. so it's a it's a very influential time. Um, and we are just, and I'm looking from the viewpoint and perspective of being in, in the United States, growing up, middle-class white kid, dad was mm -hmm. in the service. I, I, I remember a specific occasion where the, our neighbor, there was a, a man that would come home and, and beat on his wife and his children. And my mom had to literally be held back, not because she wanted to turn him in, but she wanted him to have a dose of his medicine. Yeah. You know, yeah. that was, uh, that was, I just remember her very real reaction to it. So clearly violence has been there all the time and intimate oh, violence yeah. has been there all the time. Yeah. And yet the willingness to not and those assumptions, when you talk about the assumptions that were made when you were present and they were mm -hmm. made on the, on, well, who knows, but they were made on behalf of their uh, judgment 
of how you choose to wear tattoos or what color your hair is or what what you've pierced on your body or what you haven't oh the assumptions that are made i know i mean it's so it's so frustrating because you know you talk about like your mom's experience and your experience as a child you know people think that that legally we've just come so far well that's (laughs) not true um the law is not on the side of the victim um the perpetrators perpetrators barely get a slap on the wrist i mean Mm -hmm. in most states domestic violence is a misdemeanor charge domestic violence isn't even the correct term you know and and it's it's wrong but that's Mm -hmm. the charge Mm -hmm. and it's a misdemeanor and 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 that's if they get charged i mean Mm -hmm. rarely Mm -hmm. does anybody get charged for this um but you know the the things that victims have to go through to prove Mm. that they were victimized when it's only it's only been our job to hide it you Mm. know i mean how do you like the juxtaposition of Mm. okay how do i gather facts when everything about my life has been to hide it how can i call a character with character witness Mm -hmm. when all i've ever done is build this person up in in my circle in my community so that they see what a great person he is like that's it's it's impossible and you know i don't know i i think it's so frustrating because people think that domestic violence just doesn't happen anymore that intimate partner violence just doesn't happen anymore or it's not as common um but the reality is is that it it just happens all the time it happens all the time to all sorts of kinds of people and um and and nobody's doing anything about it the laws don't help the laws hurt victims that there's a reason they're at higher risk after police involvement mm-hmm. you know it's mm-hmm. because the system is failing victims mm-hmm. so you know i i'm never going to go to school to be a lawyer so this is my best option is to change mm-hmm. it this way <laughs> mm-hmm. well having the voice and bringing the light to it is such an important thing to do because very often it's the one that's being the victim that is the one that's presumed to be the guilty one too oh that every is, time yeah it's like the the number one thing i hear is well what did she do excuse me like yeah uh, how is that how is that the first thing that pops into your head you know and there's all these you know, there's excuses for abusers. Oh, maybe he was drinking or maybe he's just stressed out at work or maybe they're losing money. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. There is not a single reason in the world why you can put your hands on another human being. There just isn't, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and abuse again is a spectrum. So it's not mm-hmm. like it starts off that way. Like I wasn't being beaten up on my first date, you know, mm-hmm. he and I had a beautiful courtship well i mean like from that now looking back right it was there were so many red flags but in the time in the moment it felt like this person is really into me and he sees me for who i am and he was just constantly building me up and making me feel like everybody else didn't see me clearly and nobody else appreciated me Mm. and i you know how was i supposed to know at 18 years old that that was a plan that that was his purpose, 
to build me up just so he knew exactly what screws to loosen to tear me apart. He did that. He gave me anything I could feel confident about and he knew just how to rip it away. I'm not qualified as a teenager to walk through that in my early teens and, and, you know, or late teens and early twenties. And, and, you know, by the time physical violence happened, like we were just so far down, I was, I was completely disassembled as a human being at that point, you know? Now there is uh, a lot of my understanding that the abuser probably has also something that curated him or her. Yeah. I'm not presuming yeah. that it's always a him, but an abuser has been curated to that position, so to speak. He didn't. It didn't just. It's not like there's just one person deciding right. that they're going to be evil or something like right. that. Right. Yeah. No. So. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's kind of funny because there's a lot of different studies on on abusers, and I find them incredibly fascinating. Um, several studies claim that most abusers are are narcissistic or have narcissistic tendencies, which of course would make sense, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and I can only speak for, you know, my experiences. I don't know all the abusers in the world, thank goodness, because, you know, nobody <laughs> needs that. Um, you know, my, my ex-husband, he was, he was an incredible human being. He was so smart and he could be very kind. He made me feel at times so loved and so important. And he had a very, very serious trauma background. Mm -hmm. And those were things that I knew going in. Um, he was very open with me about his trauma, which made me think, you know, again, at brilliant 18, 19 years old, that he had worked through that. Um, but he, you know, he had, a, he had, he had a very difficult childhood. Um, he had been in, in trouble with the law starting very early, like 12, 12 years old. His parents were, you know, calling the police on him. Um, and he was getting in trouble in school and he was the delinquent and, you know, nobody threw him a life jacket. Then nobody tried to help him when he was sinking. Um, he had pretty severe, um, like ADHD and nobody helped him. He had a brilliant mind, but like that wasn't something that when we were young was super talked about, right? right. Like mental illness. No, I, I don't say I don't want to say that that's a mental illness, but just all of those like learning difficulties and people with depression and like those weren't things that we talked about mm -hmm. when I was growing up. And um, you know, he had he he suffered tremendously, and he did it alone for a very long, you know part of his life. And I don't think that he, <clears throat> I don't think he was a bad guy. I think that's the other reason that I'm really kind of able to, to come to the table and share my story because I loved him very much. Mm -hmm. I loved him very, very much. Um, and I know that he loved me to the best of his ability. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he he was he was sick there was there was so much there um he was adopted and we don't know a lot of his 
medical history, but we do know that his biological family had a, a pretty severe history with mental illness. Um, his birth mother was schizophrenic and, um, you know, his, his biological siblings all really struggled as well. Um, so I don't think he like, you know, I don't think he ever set out to hurt me. I don't think that that was his plan, you know? Um, and I'm not saying that there aren't guys out there that, that don't do that. Cause there, there are abusers out there that like, that's their plan. They just want to hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't necessarily my situation. And, you know, um, when I, when I think about him as a father, when I think about him, you know, he wasn't equipped to handle life. Um, I was, I was a really easy target. I was young and, and very alone and, you know, I have a caregiver's heart, obviously. So I jumped right into that role of, Hey, I'll make you my everything. Um, and he didn't have to take a lot of responsibility for life because I did. And, you know, I paid the bills and I worked in, you know, he could sleep if he wanted to, or he could stay up all night if he wanted to. There wasn't a lot of adulting happening Mm -hmm. there. Um, You know, and I think about him like with, with our children and again, he loved, he loved these girls as much as he possibly could. Mm -hmm. He wasn't equipped to be a good father. He was never going to be that guy that showed up for them. He was never going to be that guy that helped them with their homework or taught him how to ride a bike, um, mm-hmm. or even tucked him in at night. Mm-hmm. But the the moments that he did share with them, like you could tell that he loved them. You could tell that he was proud to have had these beautiful daughters. Um, and you know, I just think sometimes, I think sometimes people get so lost in their own darkness. And, you know, the saying, what's the saying, like you lash out at the people you love the most, you know, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I like to believe that we just were never right for each other, but, but we tried our best and, um, and he was really sick. He was really sick and there was nothing I could do. You know, I used to, for a very long time thought, like, if I just love him enough, if I just show him what love is mm-hmm. he'll learn mm-hmm. um and that was never going to happen mm-hmm. so to have a relationship with somebody that was like genuinely a good person and cared and like 100 percent honest and i like i just kind of was like no you're you're manipulating everything felt like a manipulation uh-huh. for a really long time like i um yeah i struggled early in our relationship like waiting, waiting. Sure, this is going to be, you know, great for how long? Because, um, you know, this is one thing that I actually don't share often, but um, since we're being vulnerable here, yes. um, the, the only reason that I could leave that last time and stay gone is because he too had found an 18 year old girl that was just so enamored and like, you know, thought he was the most amazing thing in the whole world. You know, it kept him distracted, I think, long mm-hmm. enough where, you know, he was like, you know, she's going to come, meaning me, you know, she's going to come back eventually, but I'm going to enjoy my time now. And then I'll just manipulate her back later, you know. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was like I could get a breather because mm-hmm. it, it was like every time 
you know, anytime I tried to, to leave or take a minute, it was like I was bombarded with so much kind of emotional turmoil mm. and he just wouldn't let me breathe. And that's why it never lasted. Like those times that I left, it just never lasted. Um, but I'm so grateful. Like mm -hmm. I, I, you know, mm -hmm. I know her, we have, we are friends. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I have met her daughter. He, he they have a daughter. Mm. Um, shortly after he passed away, their daughter was born and I have met her and she's a beautiful little girl. And, um, you know, I will, I will forever be grateful for her. She saved yeah. my life. Mm. I don't mm. think she knows that. I don't think she fully understands it because, you know, it's, it's all great in the beginning mm -hmm. um, in these relationships, right? But she she absolutely just saved my life. Um, mm. It was just like, you know, she was, hey, look over here, look over here, <laughs> while I kind of made my escape. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we, this was very rich and very poignant <laughs> and very <laughs> wonderful to share because it is important for people to hear. But in these last few minutes, which we are already there, can you believe it? Oh Almost gosh, an hour has already gone by. It just was like, woo! But I really want to make sure that you have a chance to say exactly what you want to say and be sure and let everyone know how to connect because that's really important. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, I actually, my business name is midnight midwifery. Um, I respond fastest on like the Facebook through the business page. Um, I have uh, midnightmidwifery.com is my website. It kind of tells a little bit about me and what I do. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, at any time, um, uh, email is midnightmidwifery at gmail.com. I offer one-on-one -on -one trainings. I offer group trainings. Um, my four-hour course is accredited by ACNM. So it's really great for anybody that needs those CEUs to, you know, for their license and things like that. Um, and I'll be, you know, I'm really excited. I'll be speaking at the um, AABC um, workshop in San Diego this year in October. So, and for um, those that don't know, AABC is the American uh, accredited, it's the accredited, okay, America, a, 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 uh, American Academy of Accredited Birth, birth Centers. centers. Yes. <laughs> we may have, I I've might only, have just really I've blown always, that, but that's always, essentially what I it is. Do. So <laughs> it is, uh, it's wonderful that you're going to have an opportunity to talk there too. But continue. Yeah, I'm really I didn't mean to interrupt. About it. But I just want people to know what that is. And could you complete your thought now? Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, really, just um, I feel like I uh, just if anybody has questions, just reach out. I am happy to talk to anybody on this topic. Um, you know, I've consulted with people on individual clients that they're just not sure about. Um, helped create plans for clients, <clears throat> or you know, done trainings for their entire staff, like. This is, this is a huge thing that we just really need to be more open about, you know, yeah. and I am, I'm in a place to be really open about it. So I encourage people to ask me anything they want. Well, Cassandra, thank you again. This is just really important to me to make sure 
that these kinds of conversations make it to the air and that people have opportunities to hear it, both practicing midwives and pregnant moms and the world at large to hear and to be made aware. And it has been very important. And thank you for being so vulnerable and bringing that forth because it's only in light of that being vulnerable that it's only in light of that courageous behavior of being there with full heart that we can have calls to action, that we can have us as a society know this is not working the way it is and there's yeah. more that we can do and let's roll up our sleeves and do it. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has just been a joy and I really enjoy talking to you all the time. So, <laughs> And me too, you. <laughs> well, again, thank you for being here on Midwife After Hours and be sure to connect with uh, Cassandra at any of these ways, but just making sure you know mid midnightmidwifery.com or midnightmidwifery at uh, gmail.com. She's there and ready, and you just got to see how amazing she is. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much.